Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Now this is the first in the series of ResiCasts that we're producing around this year's Resi Convention hosted by Property Week, which as with all events, is becoming a fully virtual affair this year, unfortunately. And there's nothing virtual though about the quality of the speakers at the convention, and there's nothing virtual about the quality of our podcast guests either. And today's interview features the former chief economist uh, and, and published author uh, from the Centre for Economics and Business Research, that's Vicky Price. Uh, we're also joined by Apache Capital Partners co-founder Richard Jackson. And we're going to have at the end of our conversation, some views and some analysis from Jason Constable, who's Managing Director and Head of Specialist Real Estate at Barclays. Um, and now, as often happens this time of year, we, we go through party conferences and we move into winter. And there's always this big revival of the chatter around home ownership. And so, so often the case, it's, it seems to be home ownership at all costs, really. Um, now, the ideas this year are ranging from, from the utterly stupid and um, we've heard this before this utterly stupid suggestion over letting younger folk raid their pensions to fund first-time home purchases and, and there's some slightly more sensible suggestions around fixing mortgage rates for decades as we see in other western countries um, and let's start with vicky vicky price does it make economic sense for the taxpayer to be on the hook for lots of 95 percent government-backed mortgages well, the interesting thing is that uh, we've had a whole period of encouraging home ownership under Thatcher. Um, and the problem with that, of course, has been that it was accompanied by unwillingness to build any new houses. And I think the real problem we have in terms of home ownership is that we don't have enough houses to be able to buy, hence prices will stay high. And in my view, and we've seen that actually happening despite COVID, um, we've had the latest figures suggesting that even in September, owner prices carried on rising, uh, partly because of the stamp duty de- decrease, um, of course, and very, very low interest rates. Now, if you do that without encouraging building as well, then obviously that's going to exclude loads and loads of people from the possibility of, of owning anything, even if you take out stamp duty uh, for, for the cheapest um, premises and even if you have such low interest rates. So I think the answer has to be building more rather than just encouraging greater ownership. Uh, and it's interesting, though, when but, you but look at what happens... But, 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 but are you comfortable with the risk? Because, I mean, I, I take your point, and you're, you're obviously right, but, but fundamentally what we saw through the, the, the GFC was um, massive exposure to, to real estate and, and this, this kind of constant um, pie-in-the-sky assumption that, oh, it's fine because prices are continue going up. Well, yes, um, if you don't build, then you've got that real problem. But of course, you know, prices go up and down and have gone down in places like London, uh, where demand is perhaps sort of decreasing up to a point because uh, people are trying to, to, to move out. There is a risk. Uh, there is a risk to the, task, uh, to the uh, taxpayer probably um, uh, involved in this, uh, but there is a greater risk to the banks. These this types of lending are not guaranteed by anything other than the value of the assets. That they have at the end of the day but they're talking aren't they about about the government stepping in and being the the backer for it which would which would change the dynamic and that that's i think why some people are worried that it becomes a, a kind of open book for house builders to simply charge more but let, let's bring in richard jackson so, so richard uh, apache capital partners you, you've you've got the uk's largest pipeline of multi-family assets and and you've got a, a long track record now over the last decade in pretty much every rental asset class um 
now on, on some level this is a bit of a double-edged sword for you isn't it richard because on some level it's 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 good thing for the rental sector if people can't afford to buy but on the other side of the coin if, if the government's going to stand behind 95 percent mortgages then then maybe it becomes a little bit easier for your customers to go and buy something uh yes that is potentially the double-edged sword as you say i think People rent for various different reasons, from lifestyle choices to affordability reasons. And particularly if you look at the millennial sector, you're finding that they're increasingly experiential. They don't want to be tied down and owning a property. They want to have uh, the ability to move, to go to different cities, to live in different parts of the world and have different experiences. And ultimately, what a professionally managed, and in our case, a highly specified amenitized and service building and lifestyle affords is that change of lifestyle. It, it creates a community. Uh, it creates a, a more fun and vibrant lifestyle. And what we're starting to see in Angel Gardens is a mixed demographic, intergenerational of so all Angel ages. Angel Gardens, that's, that's the, the mode of living development that, that you've co-invested with in Manchester. That's correct. Um, and that's the first building really of its type. Um, to have been delivered in the UK to this level. And the market has been looking at it and they've been seeing and testing whether or not they believed our rents were affordable. But 46% of our residents earn the average wage within Manchester or below. So I think we're really starting to demonstrate the, the demand for this type of accommodation. In terms of the government's drive to underwrite or underpin 95% mortgages, it's going to be interesting to see how that promise is actually delivered um, I can't quite fully understand how they're going to do that. And if indeed that is the best use of taxpayers' money at this current point in time, a diversity of tenure is no bad thing in the UK, in part for the reasons which I've already identified. And it will be interesting to see how this policy is funded and afforded. And uh, Vicky, I mean, from your perspective, um, you know, Richard and, and, and Apache and, and Moda Living, their partner, have, have, you know, they've got over two billion pounds worth of rental housing coming through the pipeline there are other major investors in the uk that are doing this legal and general granger um la salle and, and other institutional asset managers like m and g as well why is it that, that that people are still uh are still sort of backing the the the, the owner all costs bandwagon so firmly and, and not getting behind getting behind the rental sector a little bit more i mean in fairness the current government has been pretty supportive but as richard says there is this need for for labor mobility there is this need for for people to to you know just to have a, a different type of lifestyle in in city centers um and where do you stand on that i mean what's the economic case forget the politics of it forget the the beauty of design what's the economic case for enabling people to to move around the country easily well there isn't a huge economic case for uh, getting people stuck in places. I think mobility is absolutely important. I think you're absolutely right in what you were saying, uh, particularly you know, with the building, HS2, assuming it goes ahead as is planned, uh, what you're trying to do is encourage people to move around so that uh, it doesn't matter where you are in a way, you can go to where the jobs are. Uh, and that's what, in terms of commuting during the day and, and being able to be much more flexible than was the case before. The economy is changing. New industries are arriving, so that flexibility is important. There is a problem with home ownership that it does uh, get you stuck in places that perhaps will then start um, declining in terms of the industries that are around it, and uh, and you absolutely need to to have that type of mobility. Maybe though, with working from home a lot more, that may be the case in the future. 
some of those pressures go away. In other words, you can perhaps you know, go and get stuck somewhere, uh, own a, a place with a garden, bring up your children and still work in London, but work remotely. So I think the, the COVID revolution in IT might work either way, really. And, and it's an interesting point, isn't it, Richard? Because again, one of the criticisms that you and Mode of Living faced when you came to the market in 2016 with Angel Gardens was, look, this, this building isn't going to work in Manchester. It's too highly specced. It's too expensive. You're not going to have anybody that, that can afford to live in it. And actually, you've proved all that wrong, haven't you? You, you know, you, you've 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 absolutely um, nailed it in terms of the, the rental premiums. The satisfaction is is really there. But above all, um, tell us about how it's performed during COVID, because that's quite an interesting point that Vicky makes around uh, you know, this 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 post COVID landscape of working from home. And actually, although you've got a you know a relatively well a, a very high high density. Uh, apartment block in the centre of a city, it's actually worked out pretty well, hasn't it? It has indeed, yes. And I do agree with Vicky. I think that we are going to enter a new norm in the way that we live. Um, and people will expect and demand from their employers more flexibility uh, and the ability to work more from home. And what we've experienced in Angel Gardens is that people love the ability to work within the privacy of their own home. But they also really like the ability to go and work in the co-working spaces or hire out the private dining rooms or the meeting rooms or the gaming presentation and cinema room. They can sit in the library and snug when they've got a gap in the day. They go and use the gym. All, of course, these amenities are provided for free. Um, and uh, alongside that are additional services and amenities on site. So it's very much a lifestyle product. And we've since COVID um, uh, started, we've actually accelerated our lettings. We achieved a 55 apartment let to a corporate occupier, which is for media companies predominantly. We have just let um, some of our penthouses at record rents at over £42 a square foot um, uh, to sports individuals. Um, and we're getting a really strong demographic and a really strong mix within our building as well. But I would just like to pick up on your point in relation to these premium rents. Yes, if you look at our headline rent, they are at a premium. But one of the many benefits of living in a professionally managed building is that we are give much greater flexibility to our residents. So there are no fees. There is no deposit. The broadband, the gym, all the amenities are included. There are discounts through partnerships with retailers and restaurants and in, in the city centre. So we're linking our building with that city centre. Discounted transportation plans, albeit all of our schemes are five to ten minutes to where you workshop and play anyway, so it's less relevant. But the point being is that we are giving people a lifestyle. And when you take all of those benefits into account, our rent are lower than older stock which is not designed for rent that's not professionally managed has no amenities or services so i think what we're able to demonstrate you know and we were very passionate about our model we we spent a lot of time in the states researching those markets applying what was relevant to the uk adapting it where we thought it was not um, and we are tending to track that performance that was witnessed in the us as well so you know we're not complacent we've got a long way to go uh, we are ahead of all of our underwriting um, and we're continuing to work very hard. I'd say the final aspect that's wrapped around that is what is different about our buildings is we decided to set up our own operational platform with Moda because we wanted to make sure that we had a service culture and an atmosphere within our buildings that reflected the design and the amenities and the services that we could offer them. And that's been really well received by our residents on site. 
and, and and Vicky, just sort of thinking about you know the sort of macro trends here, the, the investment landscape, as in the money, uh, the 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 pension fund cash to back this um, you know this nirvana that Richard describes, where everybody's got everything on tap. Now, clearly, there's going to be a, a lot of parties reconsidering where they invest their money right now, particularly when exposed to, to retail on some areas. You could argue, what you know. What do you see as, as 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 the sort of structural landscape for investing institutional money into income producing residential property over the next few years? I mean, it's obviously it's not quite as sexy and exciting as, as some other sectors, but the sort of slower, more incremental returns to some degree are, are, are more favourable to uh, to many many investors. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting when you look at what's happening, for example, in terms of investing funds in the, in the commercial property sector, where there are serious concerns that people are not going to be needing uh, offices in the future to the extent they did before. Uh, you know, dividends are being reduced left, right and centre. Uh, although we have just, of course, heard how sort of Tesco is uh, uh, just done incredibly well. It's going to sweep loads and loads of dividends uh, to um, anyone who's invested in it. There is a serious issue about pension funds trying to find something uh, which is perhaps more stable and reliable. We have quite low inflation and low yields in the economy right now, very, very low yields generally. Um, so interest rates are very low, returns are very low in, in areas such as the bond market. Uh, so um, house building and the type of um, uh, portfolio that they can have, including sort of Richard's uh, type of activity, uh, would, in my view, be a very attractive proposition for them. And, and, and Richard, I mean, how how are you seeing the, the funding market at the minute? I mean, you, you know, you were very successful at raising probably one of the, the biggest uh, biggest raises in Europe. I, I, I think it's fair to say um, last year um, with NFU Mutual, with Harrison Street to invest across your first platform. What is the sentiment that you're getting from investors now? Are, are people shying away from? doing anything at all are they are they looking more residential are, are they excited by the opportunities of of, of this growing asset class or, or or do they or do they simply think actually i'm, I'm going to keep my money in, in equities because there's there's further to go uh i think it's a bit of a mixed playing field at the moment uh, if you look at institutional allocation towards residential i think from it has already started but it's continuing and over the medium to long term i think we'll see a fairly consistent reallocation amongst institutional portfolios increasingly towards residential as an asset class and what COVID is showing be it's our model or more affordable models is that there is a resilience to the income it's defensive and it's generating those longer term income streams that is sorely needed by institutions particularly to match those liabilities and where they're not necessarily able to get those incomes from other asset classes as Vicky pointed to. Um, in terms of the exact climate at this specific point in time there is uncertainty and that generally tends to lead to a number of factors. One is indecision um, so investment committees not willing to make decisions and commitments at this point in time until they see uh, some more light at the end of the tunnel um, but it also leads to the cost of capital going up. So there is increasing cost of capital but that cost goes up and therefore the fundamentals of your deals need to change and adjust according to that. So I'd say those are the two primary uh, differences about the marketplace at the moment. What we're finding reflects very much that on the ground. There's a lot of investor interest, you know, getting that investor interest in the current climate actually converted into a check, you know, is easier said than done. It is happening, but it just takes a lot longer. 
And, and that's, is, are you seeing sentiment change now that you've got, uh, you know, you've got a year operational performance, you've got the numbers to back up some of the claims. How does that affect things? It's, it's, it is chalk and cheese. You know, we've raised all this capital historically around a concept and a strategy that wasn't proven. You know, and whilst we believed it was going to work, it's always a relief when it does because it's never been done before. Now that we have that shop front, so to speak, and we can take our investors around those assets, they can see the building for themselves, they feel the atmosphere, and they see the demographic analysis, they see the uh, the salaries, they see the, uh, the intergenerational nature of the customers that and our residents who live within our buildings the feedback from them it gives them both a qualitative and a quantitative basis of which to complete their underwriting so there's much more proof now it's proving a, a extremely helpful in our discussions with investors and i would say where do investors then focus for that they no longer really challenge that base case underwriting with which we underwrote off historically. In fact, we are ahead of where our underwriting it is, but they're very focused on what are the rental growth levels going to be, particularly over the next, you know, one, two to three years um, in this current climate. So a lot of the underwriting focuses in on the sensitivities of returns, you know, upside and downside in relation to further performance that may or may not get affected by the COVID and thus sort of macroeconomic environment and political environment, just to say as well. So, so Vicky, on that point, uh, you know about the the macroeconomic environment. What you know, w without expecting you to be, um, you know, a, a, a weather lady and and predict uh, the storms ahead, which is always going to be pretty challenging in the current environment. What you know, what can we reasonably expect? What are the known knowns for next year, really, when it comes to this broader environment? In, in you know in which the the residential investment market is is operating within so what what are the factors that lenders should be concerned about what are the the what are the the bows that institutional investors have got in their armory that that can beat down some of these challenges well the first thing we know is that it's going to be a better year overall unless something terrible happens than what we've seen this year well caveated there yes <laughs> unless something uh... more <laughs> I mean, yes, it's so difficult to forecast anything right now. But we, what we also know is that there was a lot of pent-up demand. Economists worse than doctors <laughs> or doctors worse than economists in terms of giving you an actual predictive outcome? I don't know. I, I think the economists are far worse. Um, <laughs> so so uh, because, of course, we're um, dependent on what happens in politics. And, and given that politicians don't always look at the economic implications of what they do, then uh, and it's very international, global, what's going on. Um, so we are by far the worst, I would say. But nevertheless, uh, for what it's worth, we've actually seen quite a recovery in output in the economy already. So there was a lot of pent-up demand, including, of course, for housing and including for future housing. So house builders are having a very, very good time right now with construction activity generally um, rising by something like the fastest since uh, October 2015, if I believe the latest figures. And of course, data is very important so when you talk about how much of that is 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 the stamp duty yeah. play though which is a, a bit of a it's a bit of a bit of a false dawn isn't it well stamp duty affects what happens in the short term in terms of demand for houses and of course the house builders will take a, a view of what that will mean perhaps for the future but they're also looking at how much people have saved in the last few months and they haven't spent savings ratio has gone up hugely it means that individuals who have not really been borrowing very much have the ability to do an awful lot more in the future. And rates are very, very low. So they're assuming that with population increase continuing, with things improving, there is going to be that demand. What is a big unknown? And I think that's one of the 
the concerns that I have for the future is what happens with unemployment. If there is a huge rise in unemployment, then quite a lot of what the government perhaps intends to do to support those low deposit mortgages uh, will be a lot more risky than you would have thought. And also some of the forecasts of what demand might be in terms of housing may be a lot more risky in the future. But on an investor level, though, what are the questions that what are the questions that that Richard investors are likely to be asking at this point in time about whether they should invest in residential? Well, it's the demand side, and what's going to happen there? There's the continued support, which may, may or may not be given by by the government. But the most important thing is, what do we really think about the economy in the future, uh, and do we really think still that uh, rent versus home ownership? It's going to be a rising trend because I think it is and will be. And, and I think what I was trying to highlight early on is that we're one of the few countries in Europe where it's sort of home ownership for even from a very young age seems to be the norm or perceived to be the norm. But that's all changed. It's not going to be happening at the rate that used to be the case before. And there are loads and loads of places in Europe with a younger generation expecting to rent for a very long period of time. Um, and in fact, loads of older families continue to do that too. So, so we may be moving more into a European type um, uh, environment in in that area, which is very funny given that we're just leaving Europe, of course. Well, yeah, there's there's some irony to that. And and, and Richard Jackson, uh, you know, just just moving quickly to to the older people side of it. That's obviously senior living is obviously another area that you've invested in alongside built to rent multifamily, alongside student housing, where uh, Apache began. It's its its focus initially um where do you see that senior living market going is that do you see that taking on the kind of mainstream appeal that, that we're starting to see now with student accommodation and and to a lesser degree with built to rent or do you see it being a, a niche thing that that sort of sits there on the side I think it's more niche at the moment. I think it will become more mainstream. Uh, we've been active in the sector for nearly 10 years now. Um, and it's only in the last 12, 18 months that we're starting to see some real meaningful investment and institutional investment being made into the sector, albeit still by a relatively small number of parties. I think, you know, looking at those baby boomers, there's less of a cultural acceptance towards renting, albeit if you look at the two fastest growing demographic groups for rent in the UK currently, it's young families and over the age of 65. So my personal belief, um, and we've had some empirical research done on two of our sites, uh, where there was between 14, 50% interest from those people surveyed in renting as opposed to buying. I think the sector has got huge potential for growth in terms of its quantum of growth on a percentage basis will far outstrip any of the sectors that are currently in operation today. Um, there's a huge demographic demand and I think that demand will shift increasingly towards a flexible rental accommodation as well. And we're starting to see that the likes of LNG, you know, with their Inspired and Guild platforms, they started testing out rental products. You know, they've increase the number of units that they're providing available for rent as opposed to sell so for me it's only one-way traffic uh, it's got a long long way to go it's a more difficult sector um, to develop both from a planning perspective funding is still more constrained relative to you know multifamily housing uh, and the operational risks are clearly significantly higher than those of a multifamily housing scheme but fundamentally the demand is there there are now developers and investors willing to fund those developments and i think we'll see an exponential growth in the senior living markets both for sale and for rent in the coming years and just just finishing off vicky before we bring in jason from barclays what you know given this this 
kind of slightly uncomfortable coexistence that we have between politics and economics what what would you what is your message to our great dear leaders at this time what you know what should mr johnson mr sunak be doing um that that isn't simply just driven by what's going to drive the 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 positive front pages of them on the daily mail what should they be doing that's actually going to have a positive economic and social outcome a positive economic and social outcome it's a, it's a very interesting question to ask uh, because of course we have such uh, different um uh, parts of society right now some of them very badly affected by covid a lot lot more than others and by which i mean uh you know thinking about the younger generation that richard is targeting what we're coming out with uh possibly by the end of this uh crisis assuming there is an end is that the younger people have been worse affected than the older generation the, and the poorer you are the less like this that you would have been able to work from home um and um all uh, that you've been you would have been able to in fact uh, keep your job at all so uh there there will and be a demand of the type that Richard wants but that you will find that quite a lot of the people at the lower end can't afford it uh can, not only can they not afford to buy they probably cannot afford to to rent very easily either so i think what the government needs to do if we were thinking about how to help that type of inequality we're going to see the time we merge um which will have increased as a result of COVID, is really working partnership. The types of developments that, that Richard is talking about all across the country and ensure that people actually do have somewhere uh, to live uh, because they're going to have great difficulty even exiting their, their parents' homes. And so a partnership between government and, and the industry, I think is absolutely essential right now and realising where some of those needs are going to be. Well, thank you there to Vicky Price and Richard Jackson. But let's bring in Jason Constable, who's the head of specialist real estate at Barclays. Now, Jason, it's obviously been a pretty tough seven or eight months in the market, but Barclays has been very supportive of, of many of its resi development clients. What are the sorts of challenges that you guys have faced over the last six or so months? And, and how have you been responding? How have you been supporting different clients through you know through some of the, the issues that, that they faced yes it absolutely um i think the, the the main challenge that we've had of course is that you know when you structure a development financing um it's very bespoke to a particular bill program uh, and, and how a whole phase and, and a project is coming together uh you go into a lockdown your sites get shut your workforce gets sent home and I've never had to face that kind of situation before. Um, and the first thing that you, you, you know, you think about here is you, your client, um, you know, they probably equally have never found themselves in such a strange set of circumstances. And so really the main thing for us was to get front and center with our clients, understand what the issues were. How is this more importantly going to impact on their bill program? At the point when we went into lockdown, nobody knew when we were going to be able to get folk back onto site. So this was all very much real time uh, dialogue that we were having with our clients. So lots of engagement, wanting to understand, but more importantly, wanting to be there for them. So what we found ourselves doing in practice, I guess, was, um, you know, 
extending facilities out to to accommodate a prolonged bill program, uh, maybe making various amendments to the actual debt structure to make sure that the uh, availability of their uh, financing was not hindered by the fact that they found themselves in a situation that they they hadn't planned for. Um, you know, we've been doing development mm. finance for for many many years, and uh, you know, by and large, every every transaction will have its challenges in some some shape or form. Uh, nothing rarely goes uh, exactly to plan, but this was this was a, a totally different uh, beast altogether. So, lot lots of, of open uh, and constructive dialogue, uh, and I'm very very pleased to say that we've managed to help our clients navigate their way back through getting their uh, their workforce back on site. They're clearly not operating at the same level of capacity as they were previously, but we've mm. done what we've needed to do to make sure that um, that their access to finance to make sure that uh, the product gets built uh, is maintained, uh, even if it's in a slightly different form to what was originally agreed. And, and in terms of the, the kind of future outlook, we, we heard just before from Vicky, who talked about some of the, the macroeconomic themes and trends that, that she's seeing out there right now and and you know relatively speaking it, it's looking pretty positive for the, uh, the the rental sector um and where you know where is barclays at what what's your house view on it are, are you going to be sitting on the fence when it comes to new new deals or are you going to are you waiting to see where things are going to go because i mean that that seems to be the the current uh, the current train of activity in the market, lots of people sitting around waiting to see where pricing is going to end up. And as a result, there is that element of stagnation baking itself in. Yeah, and no, I, I think it's... But clearly people people obviously still need to live something. Yeah, a, absolutely. You? You, you fit the nail on the head. I mean, I think now more than ever, people value their their, their living uh, circumstances and, and environment um, and will uh, you know be very focused on the the quality of, of, of home that they want to actually invest their money in or, or pay their rent on. So um, I, I think it's a fair challenge to say that a number of funders in this space have probably been kind of scratching their heads a little bit, in all honesty. Um, it's kind of we've had very traditional uh, residential buy to let type product um, that's been you know financed by traditional lenders for many many years uh, this is a uh, you know prs is a is a different asset class um, it offers a different proposition to an occupier and banks quite frankly have been trying to figure out how they marry up their traditional build to sell lending criteria with their traditional kind of uh, build to let type criteria um, and and that's been a bit of a challenge in all honesty in a situation where you've got a market that is still growing and evolving and the asset class is really establishing itself uh, from an institutional perspective. But, you know, the market is moving at a fast pace um, and there's a lot of product clearly coming out of the ground across the UK and lenders are starting to get their, their, their kind of heads around this. So I think the debt funds probably got a head start on, on your more traditional lending base. Um, uh, but, you know, the fact is there's so much product coming out of the ground you know there's going to be borrowers who need access to a broad suite of of, of um of debt providers and, and i think the banks are, are getting their heads around it we've had some good success uh not as much as we would like uh but we definitely are hungry for more and i think uh for, from a barclays perspective well, there is a, there's i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of capital out there though isn't there? and i think that's one of the things that we're now seeing with the i guess the fallout from retail and, and office lending and, and financing is that more money will potentially move towards broader debt funds more money will move towards residential does that put companies like barclays under pressure when it comes to to pricing and and to risk? Um, I, I think um 
you're quite right. So um, as there's inevitably going to be a redirection of capital and, and the debt funds have been very, very active in, in PRS and bill to rent, um, I think where we're not necessarily directly competing on price it's more kind of debt structure and how you know equity is put into transactions and so on so i think you know the the, the traditional lenders like barclays i think will find their place um you know the debt funds will will, will offer you know perhaps a higher leverage and that will not necessarily be the key driver for all borrowers so i think uh traditional lenders like us may not chase the leverage up in the same way but i think we'll find our place because there's just so much demand for for this kind of product um and the associated debt that goes with it that we, we you know we have a part to play um and now that we kind of get that there's more transactional evidence starting to build People are getting comfortable with the the rent levels that uh, occupiers are willing to pay to live in in a product like this, uh, and all of that is going to just get banks more comfortable that this is a uh, an institutional asset class that that's here to stay. Um, so I think yeah, we're, we're kind of playing catch up to to a degree, uh, but we are playing catch up more quickly than we have been in in recent years. So I'm I'm feeling good about the fact that we've got a you know a good part to play in the uh, the funding requirements in this sector. Yeah, yeah, no, that all makes a lot of sense. I mean, we also heard from Richard Jackson from Apache Capital Partners. Obviously, Apache and Moda's JV uh, has been widely publicised over the last few years, and and their building in Manchester that Richard talked about has been performing pretty well. Um, is that? I mean, what's your view of that? What's your view of the 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 Moda the Moda Living portfolio? Is that? Is that something you'd like to get in on at some stage? Um, I, it's a it's a bit of a sore subject that one actually. So uh, I've been trying to lend money to, to to Richard and Johnny for a couple of years now on on uh, some of their schemes across the UK, and uh, we, we haven't got there yet for them. Uh, we think they're absolutely fantastic developers that build great product, um, but you know I'm I'm a, a, a determined individual. Our, our day will come, I'm sure, uh, and uh, eventually Richard may just get fed up and just. Uh, uh, grant me a transaction so that I get off his case. So, uh, yeah, very, very keen. I think, you know, when you're particularly going into a, you know, what is a relatively new asset class for uh, a traditional lender like ourselves, um, you know, you want to chase the people who know how to build great quality product and know how to operate it. Um, and, you know, these guys tick both boxes. Um, so what you want to make sure is that when you're going into into new areas like this, you, you, you back the winners. Um, and certainly um, I'm very keen that we uh, uh, break our duck with, uh, with the guys uh, sooner rather than later. And in terms of, I, I guess, some of the other, other evolving sectors within residential, where do you stand on 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 others? So obviously, student housing in the UK and much of Europe is it's pretty mature now as an asset class. It's fair to say it's it's broadly accepted by by most large investors. There's a lot of data there, but there are emerging sectors like co living, micro living, and and other flexible tenures that that are less well established are those sorts of things assets and developments that, that you would look at what's your what's your view on some of those emerging areas jason um i, I think it's um yeah it's it's a, it's a very um sort of evolving marketplace isn't it you know people are choosing to live a lifestyle in a you know a very different way to uh, when i was setting off on the on the housing ladder um and, and i think you know things like co-living and co-working um in all honesty just in the current climate i think we're just pausing very slightly just to sort of figure out how the whole um kind of you know 
office and and kind of living crossover piece starts to evolve as we hopefully start to come out the other side of this current crisis so i think we need to sort of really figure that out to make sure that um you know we're putting our money to work in the right places um i i think um uh, co-living and co-working clearly you know up until we went into lockdown was was growing at a rapid rate i think uh, that just needs to sort of perhaps recalibrate itself slightly to deal with the uh, the new set of circumstances that we all kind of find ourselves in. But I think what is proving to be uh, a winner out of the back of this is that, you know, PRS in its many guises, um, I think, um, is really winning a lot of um, a lot of support and a, a lot of attention. I think, uh, you know, the whole working from home piece for an increasing number of people. And let's not forget that when we're through this crisis and we have a form of return to office, uh, we all know it's not going to look the same as it did before uh, and that people are going to be working from home on a more frequent basis. And uh, if you're spending your time at home, and I can certainly vouch for this, having spent the last seven months working from home, your environment, you will invest, um, you know, a bit more or you'll pay a bit more um, if it's a, a comfortable and conducive working environment because I think people are going to get used to the fact that they're in that environment and, and needing to produce, um, you know, for, for a longer period of time than they would have been used to previously. So it's a, it's a new paradigm, but one that I think um, plays very, very strongly into the PRS agenda. So again, to wrap things up, Jason, what what should some smaller developers be doing if you know if people are having challenges accessing development finance there are some you know obviously it's a little bit a little bit more complicated than we're going to solve on on this podcast but are, are you know are there two or three bits of advice that you could offer to you know to emerging businesses that might help them on their way that they're not necessarily guaranteed to get them through the uh, the, the 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 process but that might be might be some considerations that they can take on board. Yes, certainly. I mean, I think the uh, the interesting dynamic for me as we've kind of gone through uh, the pandemic is I've probably seen the impact on residential development finance for uh, SMEs um, probably impacted uh, more than than other sectors and, and other asset classes. Um, and I think that's a consequence of, you know, some of the niche um, sort of uh, lending vehicles, if you like, um, uh, have an operating model which um, was quite quickly impacted by the onset of the crisis um, in terms of, you know, potentially using leverage themselves to, to produce liquidity and provide liquidity for their borrowers. So I think some borrowers have probably learned a, a bit of a painful lesson. Um, what I would say is, um, and you would expect me to say this because I work for Barclays, um, but, you know, your traditional lenders who've been there done it got the t-shirt we've lent through cycles you know good and bad um for many many years we have a huge amount of experience and we help our clients through periods where it's more challenging than others um is that 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 we're people like us are, are here to help and we're very very keen to help and grow our sme lending book um you know we're very keen to attract new clients you know at a time when the market's uh, in a kind of a fractured state it's great for for for, for, for new client uh, engagement on our part and the important piece i think that we can also bring uh, to the table is we have a, a strategic uh, partnership with homes england uh, which is the housing delivery fund that's a you know a billion pounds of of uh, lending capacity uh, which enables us to really provide liquidity to uh, some of the borrowers that find it a bit more challenging to access so so at that smaller end where it's maybe not as straightforward, um, we not only give access to, to borrowers with the, the fund itself, but more importantly, 
this fund will allow you to take leverage to higher than senior debt traditional levels. So it will take you up to uh, 80% loan to cost. Um, so therefore, with borrowers that have a limited access to equity, we want to help them get their housing product uh, delivered because that's the the broader need that this country desperately needs. So um, with that uh, kind of offering, we're hopeful that we can continue to support uh, a whole range of, uh, of uh, developers, but particularly in the SME space, where in conjunction with Homes England and that, that kind of extra government support and, and extra leverage uh, at an attractive price point, we can we can help uh, SMEs uh, achieve their plans. Thank you then to Jason Constable from Barclays, to Vicky Price from the Centre for Economics and Business Research and to Richard Jackson, who's co-founder at Apache Capital Partners. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Please do continue to subscribe to our PropCast. If you just search Blackstock PropCast on Apple or Spotify, you'll be able to pull up and subscribe. Please do head to the Resi Convention website for information and tickets for this year's event. And please hang tight for our next PropCast, which will feature Osborne Clark and Greystar talking about operations in Build to Rent through COVID and beyond. Um, we look forward to, to seeing you or seeing you virtually soon. Thanks very much for listening. Take care.